Look, up on the slopes. What is that? Well, it looks like a pair of cross-country skiers going downhill. No, it must be some alpine skiers with broken bindings. Wait, on closer inspection, it's... Those Telly Guys. Well, good evening, good morning, and good day to you fellow Telemark skiers out there in the world. Welcome to another episode of Those Telly Guys. My name is Morgan and I'm joined as ever by Rich. How are you, mate? Hello, Morgan. I am I am well. Currently raining though, so I'm not too pleased about that. We might just head to the latest weather report first. When you wake up in the morning and you open up an eye, you turn from the clock and you look to the sky. What's the weather doing? Is it wet or dry? Who knows? What's the weatherman? And here's the latest weather report. Rain and warm. Yeah, the weather has just—it's really—it's really got me down. Although, I guess you know, based on the last uh, few few sort of years, it is uh, becoming more and more, um, I guess, optimistic to be thinking that we're going to be skiing in June. Obviously, you did get out for a ski, but uh, I am just looking at the Mountain Watch forecast now. Um, obviously, we were discussing that earlier in the week. What uh, what are you thinking about this weekend, Rich? Oh, look, it looks like it's going to get a little bit colder than they originally forecast, and that gets me a little bit excited, even if it's just a tiny bit of snow. So, yeah, I mean, signs are looking positive, um, but at the moment, yeah, still pretty warm. So how much we lose before we get a little top-up is the big question. Yeah, and you, you were up there today uh, with work, working with Parks. Rich, where, whereabouts did you get to up on the high plains? Uh, we've been working on the cross-country ski trails, throwing, this is very scientific, throwing old pallets no one wants anymore into watery <laughs> shitholes so the snow doesn't melt. Just to try, just to try, and, try and firm them up. <laughs> that's Wait, right, what do, you mean, yeah. what do you mean by watery shithole? Do you mean yeah, like that's a, a technical like a, term. Like a, like a bog hole, like a puddle or something like yeah, that? Yeah, bog hole. There's, you know, there's so many uh, peat sphagnum moss beds up yeah, there yeah, 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 yeah. filled with water and so, the so really, just, really just protecting that um you know endangered native species this sphagnum moss <laughs> yeah well it does that but it also um, um makes sure the snow doesn't hit the water straight away and melt so it's just giving the snow a little bit of a leg up and so it can sit out of the water and so the groomers can push the snow around and and make the cross-country ski trails that will be used for the hoppet which is very important yeah just giving the uh the cross-country skiers something to ski on which is good yeah no one looks Although, here we go. Snow and rain for Wednesday, it says 4.2 centimetres. This is according to Mountain Watch, of course. Um, and this is the forecast for Falls Creek, as ever. It looks like there could be some precipitation on Friday and Saturday, Rich, but whether that falls as snow is anyone's guess. And I'm sure you'll be racing up here if it is snow and you won't have to get a test, I believe. Is that right? It is correct. Uh, yeah, that's what I heard today. It sounds like if you are a metropolitan Melbourneian, you no longer need to prove that you've had a negative COVID test result within the 72 hours prior to leaving Melbourne before entering an Alpine resort within Victoria. How's that for a sentence? That is a great sentence. So, yeah, it seems like they've They've peeled back on that. That was interesting because myself and chatting to other people at work, it sounded like I sort of had a sneaking feeling, sneaking suspicion, if you will, um, that they might have sort of had that rule in place for a little bit longer or even for the entirety of the season 
but it seems like, well, they obviously have decided to go against that. So um, I guess that is, I don't know if it's like necessarily good news, but, you know, it's news and, yeah, we no longer need to get a negative test result. Yeah, we we were asking in the last episode who was going to police those tests and check that people were indeed negative for COVID before heading up the hill, but it, it was, in fact, the police checking it. So who would have thought? Sat down at the bottom of the hill there, just out of Mount Beauty. The whole, oh, at the bottom of the hill? Yeah, they did it at the bottom of the hill, the whole COVID checking station. The police were there, assisted by Foresight, who run the car parks up on the mountain, and... Yeah, checking, was, checking every vehicle. Every vehicle, yeah, okay. every vehicle. And yeah. um, were they checking for chains as well? Not checking for chains, just for <laughs> so just test. Yeah, you had your COVID <laughs> test. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Having your chains though. See my Holden, Holden Commodore. Nah, no dramas, bro. Yeah, I mean they did well. It was a bit of an ordeal last Saturday. I think obviously a lot of people had got their tests and they raced the mountain and had to kind of sit in a queue at the bottom before getting checked. And then they raced up to see an oil spill that really slowed things down. Then a tree came over the road that really oh, slowed no. things down. And then the lift was on wind hold. So welcome Melbourne to the Alps. It wasn't the greatest start, but I think Sunday was quite a nice day. So they had a good time skiing around then. Was it, was it wind hold all day on Saturday? That's Not all day, but for the, for the majority, I believe, which is a bit unfortunate. But anyway, that's the Alpine weather for you, isn't it? Yeah, and um, did you get up, Rich? The wind was enough to put me off and then I had to see the in-laws off on Sunday. So, yeah, didn't get up there on Sunday, unfortunately. But uh, this weekend, if we get a bit of snow, I'll be up there. Hopefully, fingers crossed. I've got my fingers crossed because I'm very excited. Anyway, what are we going to talk about on the show this week, Rich? I've been looking forward to this. We are going to chat with Rolf. And when I say we are, we have chatted with Rolf from the Mountain Safety Collective. And we're chatting with him about the ATC, as he likes to call it, or in longer terms, the Avalanche Training Centre, which will be a first in Australia, I believe, at least that I know of, where the public can go uh, up to Mount Hotham and try out their beacons to replicate a avalanche scenario. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, let's uh, dive into the interview and find out a bit about it. Let's go there now. And here we are with Rolf from the Mountain Sports Collective to discuss the Avalanche Training Centre that is going to be up on Mount Hotham this season. And uh, Rolf, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Yeah. It's good to be invited. Thanks. We're pretty interested um, to hear more about this new initiative. But before we get there, I'm just kind of interested to know what your role is with the Mountain Sports Collective. Well, first off, we had a we voted on our last uh, general meeting that we changed our name to Mountain Safety Collective. Oh, Mountain Safety. Sorry, line, <laughs> uh, okay. Which falls more in line with what we're actually doing these days, and it uh, is better with all the authorities that are supporting us. So, yeah, that was voted on. <clears throat> it's a little bit tricky to change over. So, some of the email addresses are still Sports Collective because. Uh, it'll be too much trouble to do to do that all at once. So um, <clears throat> I've been with uh, the Mountain Safety Collective right from the start. Uh, currently, I'm uh, Assistant Victorian Di- Victoria Director, and I'm part of the outreach team. Outreach in, as in trying to get more, uh, you know, 
sponsorship, uh, engage with other um, bodies, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I, uh, I guess the next question, Rolf, is uh, where did your, um, I guess, love of the mountains begin? How long have you been involved in uh, winter sports and, um, you know, spending time up in the mountains? Yeah. Well, I grew up in the southwest of Germany in a town called Karlsruhe. It's sort of, it's in the Rhine Valley. It's right on the River Rhine. But uh, not 45 minutes from us is the northern part of the Black Forest, which goes up to about 1,400 meters. And ironically, uh, the road that leads you there is the B500. And here I am back on the B500 in (laughs) Australia. Um, I learned skiing there. I learned skiing before I learned swimming. The first five, six, eight years, perhaps, was always just uh, herringbone up, ski down, herringbone up, ski down every day, <laughs> on and on. Uh, with 12 or 13, I got the first time I got on a chairlift, uh, not a chairlift, a T-bar. And uh, yeah, then we did a lot of summer hiking in the Alps. And uh, with 17, 18, I got into climbing, got... Uh, involved with the uh, Alpine Club in Germany. And that's when the ski touring really started to take off. Just got right into it because from where we are, it's three hours or two and a half hours. You can be at 2,000 meters in the Swiss Alps. Um, Three and a half hours, you can be at the same altitude in Austria. So it was really easy every weekend when it was good or on extended holidays to just zoom in and do a ski tour. And that's carried on. Yeah, that's carried on. And I've been here in Harrodville now for 27 years. What, um, what brought you to Australia, Ralph? Oh, well, I suppose my motorcycle. I uh, was one of those young lads who decided to travel around the world on a motorbike and uh, made it across America, came across on a ship to Australia, spent a year here. Uh, went back to America for another year and a half, spent a year and a half in Germany. Then traveled through Northwest Africa for three months, found myself on a ship for three months, and then came back to Australia with the um, aim of staying here. And all this was up in northern New South Wales, so there was no skiing for probably six years of my travels there. Once I got got down to Melbourne in 1989, 90. Uh, the itch for the snow came and uh, I started heading up to Feathertop regularly. I guess you've got quite a interesting background in European peaks and, and touring in the European Alps there. How does that compare to the Australian Alps and what do you like about the Australian Alps? Hmm. Well, my love with um, Feathertop started because I would just be able to go up there even on a weekend and have the mountain all to myself. There was nobody else on skis. There might be somebody walking past. Um, it was really nice, early early 90s up there. And uh, th- I think that's the main thing. And perhaps uh, Feathertop's got something magical about it. I don't know. Something just pulled me in here. The community in Harrodville is nice. You know, you weren't just uh, one person in a large number. You Everybody knows you. And that's kind of what's stuck. Yeah, just being, I mean, I've traveled in Europe a little bit and found it quite overwhelming how many people there were around. And I, I can agree that I guess you would feel quite 
isolated in our alpine region just from lack of participants that have getting into backcountry. But um, I suppose that is continually growing here in Australia. But uh, we might move into some questions about the Avalanche Training Centre. Yeah, we, we'd love to hear sort of any any and all information you, uh, you can tell us about the Avalanche Training Centre or um, whatever it's sort of going to be called. We're not, not sort of sure, I guess, exactly, you know, what sort of, what sort of stage it's at. But, um, yeah, like, can you tell us a bit about where and how the idea came about and um, I guess what the... Um, what the plans are for this project this winter. The idea was floated of forming the uh, what was then called the Mountain Sports Collective. And uh, after the winter, we always go to Natamak for a few days, do a bit of climbing, catch up with friends. And uh, sort of in one of the conversations with one of our friends who had just returned from his summer guiding stint in uh, Switzerland, he mentioned that... Uh, just before he flew back to Australia, he was helping the ski patrol to set up uh, an avalanche training center. And I just went, holy dolly, what's that? He didn't know much. He didn't have a brand name or anything. Uh, he put me in contact with the ski patroller and I messaged with him. And I got on to the manufacturer and uh, designer and developer of uh, the uh, training center. They call it an ATC, an Avalanche Training Center. Mm -hmm. And it basically enables you to practice beacon and probe search uh, till you've got it so dialed in that uh, you feel really comfortable doing it. I mean, you guys yourselves, when is the last time you've practiced a beacon search? Try and do it once a season. It's something to do, especially when you're kind of fogged in a bit in a mountain hut, um, often got up there and you can't ski up the top because you can't see. So we've buried some beacons and practice and made sure they work again. But yeah, I don't know. It's always a little bit trivial, I suppose. What about you, Morgs? I would say it's, I've, I've probably been worse at um, practicing with the actual beacon than, than you, Rich. I'd say it's probably, well, especially given uh, last year, it's definitely been a couple of years for me. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. So with the ATC being there, once we get enough snow cover to uh, cover all the transceivers um, that will bury, there'll be six of them there. They're about the size of a medium-sized suitcase. And uh, so you, you actually have a probing surface that pretty much simulates, uh, simulates the upper torso of a human body. So, yeah, you basically just walk up to the control unit. You get your beacon out and your probe ready if you're by yourself. Um, you choose the number of uh, victims you want to search for. In this case, it'll be one to six. And the time you want to give yourself, the max time that the unit will allow is 15 minutes because after that, your victim has passed away anyway. <laughs> so, well, don't want to take things too long. So, um, yeah, and then you press start and off you go. And um, the way this will be set up is you will not get a beep on your beacon immediately you will have to run out into the field and search for your first signal and that's going to be uh, an eye-opener for a lot of people because when you practice by yourself or with some friends when you turn your beacon to search you will have a beacon uh, and a signal pretty much straight away 
so in this case, it's run, run, run out into the area till you get your first peep and then follow the um, instructions by your beacon. Yeah, but I, and I guess that's, that's probably a good thing because in, in a real-life scenario, um, you know, you're not going to have signal straight away. You're going to have to ah. ski along to where yeah. you think yeah. you last saw your, your buddy yeah. and then look for it. That's correct. Yeah. So it, that's at that point, it's the decision, do I move on my skis? Do I uh, run? Is the snow so deep that I'm plugging through to my hips? Uh, I'm better off to stay on my skis and start searching the area. And it, it all comes down also to um, whether you're by yourself or if you're in a group, and that is the fundamental thing, is uh, if you're in a group and you really talk about it, uh, what is the best way to do this, you can uh, cut your uh, search time down drastically if you do it right. So that's the good thing you can practice. Every time you then, let's say you do your first one, you put one victim, I'll give myself 15 minutes, and you don't find it. The... uh, Control unit will do a beep telling you that uh, your time's up. So you can go back up and press one victim again. The control unit will choose a different uh, transceiver. So you're not going for the same one. And off you go again. And, uh, yeah, that's the whole thing about practicing. I suppose uh, there's going to be the issue that if, it's, uh, if there's a lot of people practicing, we're going to end up with a lot of uh, probe holes around the areas where uh, the beacons are going. And uh, we'll, we'll have signage there telling people to um, wipe, wipe, uh, try to cover their tracks as much as possible. So it's the same challenge for everybody else. Um, it's at a location where we should have regularly uh, a fresh canvas with due to the weather, <laughs> fingers crossed. And it's just nothing like, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's not like uh, an avalanche city, like walking up to it after a fresh snowfall. There's no footprints anywhere. When the thing starts ticking, you'll start um, going fast. <laughs> so uh, it shows, yeah, I've, I've set it up a couple of times, uh, especially in the last uh, backcountry festival we had up here at Hotham. And out of them, perhaps 20 to 30 Teams of two or three that had a go at it, 50% did not know how to operate their beacon properly or weren't prepared for the fact that the first thing to do is run till you get a signal. That's an interesting bit of data there. 15% weren't sure how to use it initially. So I guess, is, is that the intention, Rolf, to, to allow everyone to participate and use this Avalanche Training Centre? Or is it just meant for members of the club or members of oh, the no, no. safety collective, I should say? It's, it's absolutely open to anyone um, who has got a beacon and a probe and wants to practice their, um, their skills there. Absolutely for everyone. And that's the same for uh, all the other um, authorities that do search, whether it's SES or um, the Alpine Bush Search and Rescue. They're all welcome to come up and practice. And as I said, it's in, in, in setting up the group dyma- dynamic. If you have a larger group for searching, what is the best way? You know, do we just go out? If we're looking for two victims, do we just go out with two people with their beacons trying to get a signal and the others get shovel and probes ready? What is the quickest way? And uh, on the, uh, where, where the unit is mounted, it would be like a display. Um, there's the information on how to operate the um, 
ATC, and there's also a search strategy for a three antenna beacon. And uh, that was put together in collaboration with the company that makes it and all the mountain guides in Europe. I advise everybody to read that thoroughly. We'll probably be posting it on our um, social media channels as well. And uh, yeah, from there, you just basically take your hints on how to how to fine-tune your search. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting up there and using it myself to sharpen Absolutely. up my, yeah. my skills of searching for um, the briefcases underneath the snow there. We did a ski tour in 2017 for four weeks. We went from Innsbruck towards uh, Switzerland, all through the Alps there, through the Stubai, Ötztal um, mountain ranges, and uh, we came across quite a few of the ATCs and uh, had a go at them in different locations. And it was just amazing. And some places, the school kids, the local school group would be uh, practicing. So the kids in Austria, they get exposed to it at the age of 10. It's like a high-tech treasure hunt, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. Could you, could you shed a little light on, um, I guess... Uh, you know, this might be, uh, I guess, a bit naive of me to ask, but like whereabouts on a, you know, typical ski resort would one of these things be located? Is it like halfway down a run somewhere at the top near the village or at the bottom or, um, you know, hidden off in the trees? Yeah, that, I mean, that really all depends on the uh, ski resort that sets it up. There's over 50 of them throughout the European Alps. Um, some of them are for private use, but that's minimal. Most of them are free. Um, quite a few of them, like ours, is crowdfunded and uh, put there by the community. A lot of times it's um, the local ski patrol, perhaps the uh, the Shire, because it is an asset to the resort that will draw people there and, and all it will improve uh, safety. So cool. when it comes to location, it's it's tricky because you have to have... You have to have it away from any uh, electronic interference because, as you know, the beacon is very sensitive, uh, being designed to find, being found uh, to, to be able to be located, buried under meters of snow and uh, to last on, a, you know, three AAA batteries for weeks at a time. And uh, so you have to be away from any any sources of any electrical interference, whether that's buried power lines or uh, um, communication cables between uh, base stations and the top of the mountain. So that's where the resorts would have to choose their location carefully. And it's usually done in, in uh, cooperation with, uh, well, the installer in this case, yeah. So has a location been picked for Hotham? Right? Yes, yes, we... I think we found a really nice spot and it's the track that leads from the day car park from the uh, side where the buses park up uh, between Lawless and the old Hoys Chalet. And there's a track that leads up and some backcountry skiers would be familiar with the track that uh, then goes down towards the old pump house place, which is in the, uh, what we refer to as the women's downhill environs. And it'll be just uh, before the forest starts there. We've got a nice big area, but uh, probably about 150 by 70 meters. So 
it'll be nice and challenging. And I'll be using, because it's, it's very typical for how an avalanche would occur here in Australia. You'd always end up with the um, avalanche sliding into a terrain trap. So there'll be trees to deal with uh, that'll make it a little bit tricky operating a long probe. Um, yeah, it'll be nice and challenging. Easily accessible because you just uh, take the bus or if you get a, if you're lucky enough to get a car park in the day car park, it's only a 300 meter walk from um, from the car park. And Rolf, I'm interested to know where this equipment is coming from. Is it made in Russia or Europe, somewhere like that? No, no, it isn't from Russia. It's uh, made in Switzerland. It's uh, produced by a really small uh, family business in uh, sort of probably considered the flatlands of Switzerland, sort of the farmlands. And uh, they've been involved in mountain rescue technology for over 50 years, the business. So apart from the ATC, the other things they make is uh, they make checkpoints, which we found on our ski tours in uh, Austria, almost at every mountain hut and at the top of a ski resort where you would... uh, leave the ski resort area to go into the backcountry or to go ski touring. So the checkpoint basically just tells you, yes, you've got your beacon on and it's in send position and it'll give you a green light. If you haven't got a beacon or it's accidentally you didn't turn it on or you switched it to uh, search, it'll give you a red light. Uh, The other thing they produce is a helicopter-based search system. This is in case for um, if an avalanche occurs, people are buried, and it's a long way for uh, rescue personnel to get there, or there's the danger of uh, secondary avalanches. With the helicopter, they'll be able to do a quick flyover to confirm whether there is anyone buried and uh, give pointers to rescue personnel who will take a little bit longer to get to the site. Probably not necessary in Australia yet. <laughs> yeah, well, um, this, yeah, it sounds like such an awesome an initiative, Rolf. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks for talking uh, us through some of the ins and outs of, um, I guess, these... Uh, well, yeah, these avalanche training centres in general and also what it might look like at Mount, Hoth- Mount Hotham. Um, but I was sort of just wondering as well, obviously the Mountain Safety Collective is uh, has a presence in Victoria and in New South Wales. Does uh, They haven't started up any of these in New South Wales yet. And uh, if not, are they planning to? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would really like to see one. I've looked at a um, location, which is just the other side of the um, Guthaga Pondage which would be a great spot to have one. Yeah, that's very popular. Um, yeah, especially because it's very popular, so everybody can, on their way up, have a quick uh, quick practice or on their way down. You know, we've had talks with parks over there, so now it's just a matter of funding. I mean, it's they're not cheap by the time they land here with uh, freight and taxes, and you're looking at $25,000 for one. Whoa. Um, which... Yeah, which is, seems like a lot, but again, you have to understand the last 10 years, I mean, there's, well, there's, no, there's no really a lifespan on them. If they're properly taken care of, they'll last for a long time. They are powered by D-cell batteries, and uh, 
here our winter is maybe three, <laughs> we're lucky, four months. Over in Europe, they'll do six months without anyone having to check anything. They'll just tick along. So it's quite a, quite a sophisticated little device. It goes into sleep mode as soon as there's no action for um, an hour and turns everything off. And that's how it's uh, able to conserve all the power. Yeah, wow. Does it have, I guess, a maximum depth that it can be buried up to? Like, say, if we get another blizzard of Oz and then we get um, 15 metres of snow, that's obviously an exaggeration. But um... Yeah, yeah. well, um, ideally, they should be between uh, one to one and a half metres below the surface, ideally. In 2019, when I set it up above the cross at Hotham, near the summit, I buried, uh, I had at the time I just had a demonstration unit with two transceivers, and I buried the first one in about uh, 50 centimeters of snow, and the second one in a bit of a drift at uh, 70 centimeters. And then we had the, uh, was it the blizzard of Oz? I can't remember, but um, next time we went out there, the beacon didn't even, for the one that was buried in the uh, drift, the beacon didn't even switch to fine search because it was oh, wow. still 3.4 meters away. Oh. So it was really hard to really locate it. And on top of that, nobody's got a probe that's three and a half meters long. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We were a bit baffled there. And uh, then the snow started dwindling and they came in with some groomers into that area to harvest some snow. And as soon as I heard that, I said, Oh, I need, I need a couple of shovels to give me a hand. We need to get these puppies out <laughs> before they get uh, smashed by the groomers. Yeah. And uh, for the one that was at three and a half meters, it took two guys 45 minutes to get to it, to be able to get it out. So that just shows you how uh, you don't want to be buried in an avalanche, no matter what. Some pretty good insight to the kind of time it will take to be removed from something like that, yeah. So on that note, uh, as part of the uh, Backcountry Festival uh, at Hotham in September 3rd, 4th, 5th, we're going to have, obviously, the ATC running, and I've, I've uh, part of the brief is that every organised tour during the three-day festival will bring their participants past the ATC so everybody can have a go. Not necessarily as a single person, but as a group, because I think, you know, when you go and ski touring, you should really be in a group of four people. Um, I think that's a perfect number to be able to self-rescue yourself in case of um, any incidences. And uh, so we'll have the ATC. We'll also have a sensory trail where you walk along a stretch and uh, poke around with your probe and there'll be different things buried. And just to so you get an idea what a ski feels like, what a boot feels like, what a person feels like, what a backpack feels like when you're probing it. And we'll have, if, uh, if uh, the snow is on our side, we'll set up a digging area in one of the drifts where you will have to dig to the bottom of the probe at two and a half meters, let's say. And we'll time all those events, uh, all those things. So, yeah, we'll get an idea or people will get an idea what they have to work on. Awesome. It, um, yeah, it sounds like it's been really well thought through, Rolf, which is awesome to hear. And, yeah, 
like uh, as Rich mentioned, yeah, I can't um, can't wait to get up there and check it out myself. Yeah, you've given us uh, so much of your time already, Rolf. And um, yeah, but before we wrap up the show, uh, we'd just like to quickly ask: Are there any other projects that the Mountain Safety Collective? Are there any other projects that, that they've sort of got on the go for this year? And um, what what can we expect to see uh, if, if you're able to reveal anything? Well, we're very busy in in uh, redesigning our website. So it's also got a back door where observers could go in and put observations in. We're really trying to get the whole thing up to uh, the international standard that it should be. So that's one of the main things we're working on. We've got a few new merchandise things like caps nice. and uh, hoodies going this year. And then the big one will be the uh, Backcountry Festival where we've taken a bit more of a role, active role in, in the organisation. And uh, yeah, then the other big thing is, uh, of course, lobbying New South Wales to perhaps support us a bit more in order to finance uh, the forecasting in New South Wales. That's still a bit of a loophole. One, one thing... I will ask, it looks like you've got quite a good relationship with Parks Victoria and got some signs out there with your logo that are now scattered across the Bogong High Plains National Park um, with QR codes that people can scan those and and get access to -to up-to-date, well, as up-to-date as it can be, information about um, uh, aspect and terrain and and deed weather and stuff like that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I, I think it's great because it gives you the up to date latest observations for the area that you're going into. I think it's a, it's a fantastic uh, cooperation there with Parks Victoria. Absolutely, yeah, it's a hell of a lot better than uh, than what uh, New South Wales is doing. They're putting out posters saying. Uh, your safety is your responsibility, inform yourself, but no link to where you can get the information from. They're basically just pointing the finger at the police to give you uh, weather updates or the Bureau of Meteorology. But uh, they don't have the qualified personnel to really understand what the snow does. So that's really what's needed in New South Wales um, is for people to perhaps, you know, write a letter to their member of parliament or just lobbying so that they get behind us. The more people behind you, the better to get some more dollars in there so we can see some more of this equipment and information out there. And it has improved over the years. And yeah, thanks for everything you've done. It sounds like you've been there from the beginning, as you said, and I'm sure you've put a lot of hard work and effort into it. And I want to thank you, Uh, personally from us too uh, for coming on the show we really appreciate it yeah you're welcome look uh, i mean my vision is that uh, if an australian traveling overseas and he comes into an avalanche situation he should be able to just go i've got this let's go you know rather than oh my god oh my god oh my god (laughs) there's an avalanche happening what do i do and uh, that'll just be good because uh, I think Australians yeah. don't have that good of a picture in, in some areas for, for uh, their behaviour in avalanche terrain. So it'll be good to improve that. Yeah, I guess it's still a bit of a, yeah, uh, something that people just think uh, doesn't happen particularly often here, even though, you know, I no. guess evidence has shown that, you know, it can and, and will happen. 
Well, the, the first time I went on an ITC, I just went, hang on a second, this is actually, uh, it is not that easy. I think I better make sure that I, I do not get caught in an avalanche. What do I do? I do a course to, you know, educate myself to be aware of the dangers and how to go about it. So that's, that's the moral of the story, really, I think. Yes, just keep educating yourself and learning as much as you can to be better prepared in the backcountry. And um, you guys are certainly helping out with that. Um, again, Rolf, thank you so much. And hopefully we're running you, into you sometime, hopefully at the Backcountry yeah, Festival. Well, give us a ring when you're coming up, when you're coming over, and I'll um, talk you through it anytime. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Thank, thank you. Well, Morgs, that was a pretty interesting conversation about the ATC with Rolf, and he was a pretty interesting character, uh, having lived in Germany. I didn't know that, and coming over to our mountains and finding some sort of intrinsical love for Mount Feathertop. Yeah, yeah, it was great to great to hear from Rolf then, and like, yeah, I'd really love to uh, get him get him back one day, and you know, talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, his life and his passion for skiing, because obviously, I guess we're. Um, sort of focused on the the ATC today, but, uh, yeah, we didn't even ask him if he was a, a teleskier rich. That should have been question question numero uno. Well, being from Europe, maybe he's into randonnée. Um, oh, yes, randonnée. Yeah, which, of course, is French for can't telly. So, <laughs> um. Maybe, maybe. Very good. Well, I'll tell you what, Rich, I think it could be time for a little bit of promotional snow ladies and gentlemen boys and girls look to the skies it's promotional snow promotional snow you've you've found something yeah promotional snow you see i had a look i had a look around um well yeah just by chance i was on the the Mountain Safety Collective website, which is fantastic, might I add. There's plenty of excellent information out there, particularly about um, avalanches and, um, you know, all sorts of things. What, Good what's happening? merch as well. Lots of really cool yeah. merchandise. Yeah, great merchandise. Um, you know, conditions reports, sort of pretty detailed reports uh, by people that are sort of up there and in the environment, which is great. But I went into... Um, yeah, I went into about Mountain Safety Collective in in 2021, and I found I found uh, this little nugget of gold right here, which said "Partners in Rhyme." <laughs> now this is a this is a bit of a, a niche pun, probably one of the more niche puns I've come across. Now, Rich, can you perhaps explain to us what rhyme is? Well, rhyme is, of course, that filthy ice that you get. Um, the ice that forms when water droplets in fog freeze to the outer surface of objects, such as trees, or in our case, um, snow poles that uh, guide us to various mountain locations, often covered in rhyme. Yes, and not to be confused with nursery rhyme. This rhyme is spelled R-I-M-E. So uh, whip out your dictionaries and uh, circle rhyme. Partners in rhyme. Uh, yeah, so I thought that was pretty funny. There you yeah. go. Absolutely. Just a little just a little snippet of promotional snow there. Yeah, that's, that's all I could find. Yeah, thanks very much. Well, great 
chatting to you and Rolf Morgan. I guess we'll catch you next week. Absolutely, mate. Till next time, keep those heels nice and free. Will do, mate. Catch you later. Those telly guys hope you have enjoyed this program. We'd love to hear from you. Please get in touch at thosetellyguys at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe for more fun episodes. Otherwise, you can find us on Instagram. Thank you. (laughs) 